So this morning, we're going to continue on in our series in Haggai. So last week, we started Haggai chapter 1. Um, if you don't remember how to get there, if you weren't here, the easiest way to get there is go to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and then go backwards, three books, right? Malachi, Zephaniah, then Haggai. I mean, Malachi, Zechariah, then Haggai. If you get to Zephaniah, you've gone too far, all right? So you can go ahead and start turning there, and I'll, we're going to talk a little bit about what the Lord showed us last week in Haggai chapter 1. And if you're overzealous this morning, you can go ahead and mark a spot in Ezra chapter 3, because we're going to be there in a minute as well. But the book of Haggai, what what the Lord was showing, this was one of the prophets, and what had happened in chapter 1 was that the people had stopped building the temple of God. They had been working, they'd been building originally, and then 18, they had got stopped, and then 18 years later, the Lord calls them back to begin to rebuild. They'd been focused on their own houses and had rebuilt their lives, but they had not rebuilt the temple to the Lord. And so in Haggai chapter 1, the Lord says, I want you to start working on my house and prioritize me over the things that you prioritize for yourself. And so with that foundation, we get into Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says this, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? See, we've got to get some backstory, because right here what he's saying is that there was an original temple that had been built by King Solomon. And that temple had been destroyed, and the people had been taken into exile, and then there were some of the people who came out of exile who still remembered the original temple, and they knew the original temple. Okay, so we've, we've got to back up a little bit here to make sure we've got full context. So Ezra chapter 3 is going to give us that context. It's going to play it out of what happened. So hang with me, Haggai happens 18 years after the foundation, about 18 years after the foundation of the new temple is built. So the people have gone to exile, they've come out of exile, they lay the foundation for the new temple, they put an altar there, and then everything stops for 18 years, and then we have Haggai. So we want to back up to when they were building the foundation of the temple about 18 years before. And Ezra chapter 3 speaks to what happens in that moment. I'm going to look at verse 10. It says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So here's the picture. These people had gone into exile. The temple had been destroyed. Everything of value to them was wiped out. And many years later, they have the opportunity to come back and rebuild the temple. They've just relayed the foundation, and everybody is celebrating. Right? This is a glorious moment. Almost everybody is celebrating. Look what it says in verse 12 of chapter 3. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. 
See, this is not a weeping of joy. This is a weeping of brokenness. Because these, some of these people who had seen the original temple, original temple said, there's the foundation of this new temple doesn't even compare with what the old temple was. It's not even built all the way up yet, just the foundation, and they're already weeping because it can't compare to what was. And so in Haggai chapter 2, the Lord is starting here in verse 3 to draw out those who were in that place of saying, this new temple has no comparison to the old temple and the ones who were broken. And that's where this question comes from, is from that context. In verse 3, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? See, those that were, had, could remember were comparing back to what they knew and comparing back to what the temple had been, and they thought, the, the glory of this temple is nothing compared to the one that was. And they begin to grieve what was, and miss what used to be, right, in that picture and in that moment. Do you ever find yourself getting in that place, looking at what used to be? I mean, here's the deal, There's, there, we can compare to a lot of different things, and sometimes we compare backwards, and what's in our mind is much better than what was real, right? I don't know about you, but I have my favorite restaurants that I remember as a kid, and not going to those for a long time, they, they just get built up in your mind, right? This is the best Mexican food place I've ever been. And you get, the, the more, the longer years go without you going back to that place, the better the food becomes. And then one day you go back and you're super excited, you're ready to get back, you, you get into that restaurant, you order the same thing you've always ordered, you're ready to eat it, and you take that first bite, and the first thought that runs through your mind is, I wish I had left it in my memory. Because <laughs> it's not near as good as what I remembered it being. Right? Sometimes we compare it, and what's, what's real does not match with what was in our mind. There are times, though, where when we look back, and we look at what had happened in our lives where it was really good. So I remember as a young kid, as I, I mean, as an adult looking back on pictures and memories, my grandparents had a farm. And I remember with my grandfather going out in the truck, out in the pasture, feeding the cattle. I remember riding the combine, tilling up the earth, just riding out there with him. I remember sitting in those iron chairs by the pond with a fishing pole in the water, just talking with him and waiting for that bobber to go under, see if we had a catfish, right? The smell of their house as my grandmother was cooking. I can look at a picture and almost smell it, right? You remember those things. And there's pieces of me that look back and go, man, I grieve over not being able to do that again. But I wouldn't change what I have now with my kids to experience those things with my parents to go back. Because what the Lord is doing in our family is so incredible. And so what the Lord is doing, he's gently drawing them out. Those that are looking back and longing for the old temple and saying, do you remember that this one does not compare to that one? And then he's going to begin to encourage them and play that out. Look at how he encourages them. Look at what he tells them in verse 4. 
He tells them how to walk through that. He says, verse 4, But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, O you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenant with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. See, as they begin to compare the two, the Lord says, hey, there's some things I want you to do. One, I want you to be strong. I want you to take courage. Doesn't the Lord tell the people over and over again throughout the Old Testament when he's doing something with them to be strong? You can go back and look at Joshua when he says, be courageous. And any time he's called them out with Moses, he said, be strong. He begins to tell them, as I'm getting ready to do something, I want you to take courage. Understand this reality. What's the reality? What he's about to say, that I am with you. That I'm going with you. That I'm in control. The song we sang, he is sovereign over us. This picture that he goes before us and he is working out his plan. That we can take courage. As I talk to people who at times are, are um, remembering things and moving forward, some of my favorite people are, are uh, men in their 70s and 80s who are pursuing the Lord because they have the ability to understand history in a much larger scale than I do. Right? You think about when you were 15 and something happened and it became the, the biggest thing in the world. Right? You, you I don't know, you, you lost your homework, or it became this huge deal. We, when I worked with college students, the, th- the smallest things were major to them. And my, Michelle and I had to continuously remind ourselves, their world is still very small. Someday their world will expand. And what is, what is major now will be minor. And those things will change. Well, So when I talk to these men who are in their 70s and 80s who walk with the Lord and, and they begin to lay out what the Lord has done in their life, they have the ability to understand history in a way different than I do. And so I learn from them, walk with them. And, and as they talk about what the Lord has done, there's always an element of what the Lord is doing in their life at the moment. You know what they do? There's, there's courage. They go, you know what? I don't know exactly what's happening, but let me tell you what I do know. I do know that God's in control, and I know that God's called me to something specific. See, here's, here's that, that passage, that section that we can easily overlook here in verse 4. After he tells them to be strong, what does he say? It says, declares the Lord and work. He calls them to get to work. He says, get to work in building the temple. See, the work he's called them to is building the temple. The work he's called you and I to is making disciples. So what, what the work that he's given us is making disciples. So as I talk to these men and they begin to talk about different things and different aspects of how the Lord's worked, the one common theme I see in every one of their lives, they are currently at work making disciples. They're investing their lives in other people. There's one of these men is in his 70s and he has ALS. And his ability to function physically is pretty well gone. Um, his mind is still very, very sharp. And it's amazing to watch as, as people come into his room, people that don't know him or anything about them, they come into his room. He and his wife have this understanding that the most important part of that visit from anybody in that room, whether it's someone working, trying to either take out the trash or do anything else, whatever that may be, the most important thing is that they have the opportunity to hear the gospel. 
And this was what was most important to him before losing some of that capacity to be able to communicate. So he has these little business cards that have a little bit of the truth of the gospel that it's the most important thing to him that every person that walks in that room gets that card. And when you ask his wife, what do you want us to pray for? She talks about the people who walk through the room who don't know Jesus Christ. She doesn't mention her husband. And in fact, she comes back at times and says, I don't understand why people are asking if, and talking about praying for my husband's healing. He is healed. He knows Jesus Christ. He needs no other healing. They are focused on making disciples regardless of the circumstances they're facing. And so what the Lord is calling the people here out to is to say, look at what's in front of you. I understand the pieces you see. This temple is not going to compare in footprint compared to the temple that you knew. But you go about the work of building the temple that I've called you to build and watch what I will do. And for us, the application is for us to go about making disciples, to take courage and be about that business and to trust the business of everything else to the Lord. And watch what he will do. See, because it goes on to talk about not fearing. He reminds them of the covenant in verse 5 that he made with them in Egypt. That he would bring them out. And then he said, my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Isn't it amazing when we start comparing? See, this passage is talking about comparing backward to something of the past. But we can apply that reality if we compare all different directions, don't we? We compare sideways to people who are, who are like us. We compare um, in, in all kinds of directions. And notice that last phrase, do not fear. Comparison drives fear, does it not? This reality, you know what social media is built for? It is built intentionally. I've read articles and looked at all kinds of different things at times. Social media, um, advertisement, marketing, even politics are built around comparison. That's the whole purpose. They intentionally build it around comparing you to something else. You don't run fast enough, buy this pair of shoes. You'll run faster. They breed, it intentionally breeds discontent. The goal is to breed discontent so you buy something or do something. You're not one of the top 40 men under 40. You need to get better. These 40 men are better than you are. Politics has figured it out. Which people vote best? Angry people. If we can make them angry, they'll go vote. So let's figure out how to make them angry so they'll get out and vote. They figured out that works better than anything else. Discontent and comparison drives the culture that we're in and, and seeks to drive us. And you know where, what lives in that world? Fear. Fear thrives on comparison. As we compare ourselves to other people, as we look at comparing uh, about where are they compared to me? Am I parenting right? Am I grandparenting right? Am I getting this job done? Who got that promotion? All these different things. Comparison will steal the joy that God intends for you to live with. And it will paralyze us from the purpose He's called us to. See, because fear is a much easier driver in the face of the unknown. When we don't know what lies ahead, fear will drive that train every time. But what the Lord is saying here is take courage. Be about the business I've called you to being about, and that's the work that I've called you to. So for them, it's building the temple. For us, it's making disciples. Be about that work. Understand that I am with you. 
See, this statement only matters if you value the person who says they're with you. God's state doesn't change. He's ultimately in control. He's still sovereign whether I want to believe he's sovereign or not. But my perception of him will drive whether I live in fear or whether I take courage and follow what he's called me to. Here's the example. I'm, I'm not a music person. I like to listen to music. But I couldn't tell you 90 to 95% of the people who are popular musicians. It's just not a big thing to me. So if you named the, the most popular musician in the country right now and said, that person is going to spend a day with you, I'd probably say, man, I just wasted a day. Because it doesn't hold value to me. That person being with me is not valuable. But as a kid, my dad and I were in an airport about to fly back from Houston to Dallas. And we looked across waiting to get on our plane. And my dad nudged me and said, look who that is. As a kid growing up playing baseball, loving baseball, being a Rangers fan, there is only one name that holds value to a Rangers fan. That's Nolan Ryan. Right, that name, now I know there's a lot of other names, I give you a bunch, but that name above all of them, he was standing over there about to get on our airplane. I tell you what, I thought I was the coolest kid in the world. I got to fly on the same plane that Nolan Ryan flew on. He was on that plane. There was no way this plane was going down. We got Nolan Ryan. Right? This reality. In fact, I was the kid that started the autograph line. I was the one that walked up to him and said, Mr. Ryan, can I have your autograph? He was gracious, said yes, and then this whole line formed. But this picture, of in that, as, a, as a sports guy, that, that mattered to me that he was there. Here's this picture. The Lord is with you and with us. And he was with his people here, regardless of whether they valued him being there or not. But their ability to take courage, their ability to move forward, their ability to be about the work the Lord was calling them to, was dependent on how much they valued his presence. If they fully trusted him and were dependent upon him, his presence would matter in a way that would lead them to do things they wouldn't otherwise be willing to do. They could take up that courage and move forward because they knew he was in control and they trusted his presence being there. The Lord's going to go on to tell them not just how to respond, but he's going to tell them what he's going to do. Verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desired of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver's mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. So here's the picture he gives. Look, if you're concerned about this place not having as much gold as Solomon's, let me remind you, I can shake the earth in a moment and every amount of gold on this planet will be right here. And in fact, there would be a time where there would be more gold in that temple than there would be at this time. It would still never compare to Solomon's temple. But the Lord is reminding them, hey, I'm in control. If you're concerned about not having enough gold here for me, you just do what I've called you to do and trust that I can shake the whole earth and bring about all the gold I want. My heart is not about the gold of the earth because it belongs to me. Look at what he says in verse 9. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. 
How is that possible? The glory of this house will be greater than the the house that was before. So the glory that will exist in this temple will be greater than the temple that you are looking to, the one of Solomon. How will that be? Because there's no way it's going to compare in splendor when you look at it. See, the Lord was looking at something they couldn't possibly understand in that moment. There would come a day where a young boy would walk into that temple. And that young boy would eventually grow up and and he would come into that temple and would teach. And that man would come into that temple again and drive out the money changers who were abusing the temple of God. And that man would one day go to the cross to pay for every sin that you and I would ever commit. That anyone who would believe in Jesus Christ would be made right before God. How is the glory of this temple going to be greater than the glory of the first? Because the Son of God was going to be in the midst of this temple. See, what God was doing was was moving. It was not about the temple itself. It was about the one who would be in the temple, and his glory is much greater. And what God was going to do through Jesus Christ would cause the glory of the previous temple to pale in comparison. Because this passage says it will grant peace. Who is the Prince of Peace? Jesus Christ. Who is the one that brought about the means so that people no longer had to walk into the temple and sacrifice an animal for the sake of their sins before God because there would be one sacrifice for all and that would be Jesus Christ. That one day when Christ was on the cross and the work was finished, the veil of this very temple would be torn in two because no longer would we need a human priest to go before God on our behalf. We had the Son of God who would sit at His right hand and would be our high priest. See, what they couldn't see in that moment was they were threaded into the story of what God was doing and their legacy would be to become a part of rebuilding this temple so that the one who would ultimately come and give greater glory would have a temple to walk into. They couldn't imagine what God was going to do. And if they had stopped and simply stayed in a place of comparison, they could have become paralyzed. See, when we started to work on the temple before, all our work got stopped. So maybe if we start it now, maybe all that will stop again. What happens when it's not going to look anything like that was? And there's all these reasons for doubt. And yet if they simply got to being about the work God had called them to do, they would see the fruit of what God was doing. No, these people wouldn't individually meet Jesus walking into the temple. But they would find flourishing in in obeying the Lord and learning what dependence on Him means so they could flourish and thrive. You and I have no idea what God's doing. In our lives and the lives of people around us, there's times you, you might look at your marriage and go, it is not what I dreamed it would be on the day we got married. And the Lord is saying, take courage. Be about what I've called you to be about. Trust that I am with you in the midst of that marriage that is so broken right now and know that I can do more than you could ever imagine. You just hold on and follow me. 
Maybe it's in your work, or maybe it's in some other area of your life that you're going, it does not look like what I thought it would look like, and you were just broken. And the Lord says, trust my presence with you. I can do more with broken circumstances than you could ever do with perfect circumstances. You walk with me and trust me. The Lord would do more out of their obedience and out of their return to him than they could ever imagine. And they would walk away from fear and move toward faith and hope and trusting the God who had given them the task of rebuilding the temple. This chapter goes on to talk about a couple other times that the Lord spoke to Haggai to speak to the people. We don't have time to walk through all of those but just knowing that the, the next one, the Lord speaks to him and begins to talk to the priest and uses the Levitical code of, of if a piece of meat is consecrated and it touches other food, does it make the other food consecrated? And the priest would say no. He said, well, if you take, if someone touches a dead body and they become defiled and then they touch this food, does that food become defiled? And they say, and they say yes, it does. And the Lord says, simply remember that before the time that you started to rebuild the temple, you were just like the one who was defiled and touched. Everything you touched failed. When you have returned to me and begun to be about what I've called you to be about, I have poured out my blessing on you. Don't forget to look to me and not to yourself. And then he ends the book talking to Zerubbabel, the leader, and talking about how he is created a spot for him that he is chosen of the Lord and you know that at the, at, in the lineage of Christ you know whose name you find? Zerubbabel he comes in the lineage of Christ and so throughout this book this is a very short book that the Lord gives a clear picture that, it, that we are to align our lives with what the Lord says is right and true and good and set aside other priorities and things that get in the way and as we start going about the work that the Lord's called us to do there will be things that don't look the way that we expect them to look. And the Lord simply says, take courage. Be about the work I've called you to be about. Let me do the things that only I can do. And as you follow me, I will blow your mind with what I want to do. You follow me and let me lead you to flourishing. Don't spend your days in comparison. Spend your days in obedience. And I'll do more than you could ever ask or imagine. Isn't that comforting to know? That God's work and God's sovereignty in our lives is not dependent on the circumstances we face. It's dependent on Him being the, the God of all things and we are absolutely confident that there's nothing that is out of His control. And we can rest in His hands. We can take up courage. We can be about the work He's called us to. We can enjoy His presence in our lives. And we can avoid fear by trusting Him fully. These little books are powerful. We don't want to neglect the full counsel of the Word of God because every time He spoke to His people, it's a reminder to us of His goodness, His faithfulness, and His working.